Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Lee Madden, the CEO of Epirus, an innovative power management company that is focused on high-power microwave systems to counter the growing threat from unmanned aerial vehicles. Before joining the company, founded four years ago and named for the magical bow with infinite arrows wielded by the Greek hero Theseus, Lee spent eight years leading Microsoft's national security business, along the way working at EMC, VMware, uh, SCIC, and other companies. He started his defense industry career after serving in the United States Navy SEALs uh, as an officer. Lee, thanks very much for joining us and welcome aboard. Well, Vago, thank you for that introduction. Great to be here today. An absolute pleasure uh, having you on. Dan, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, ultra intelligence, and communications. Sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Air Show media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading air show was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. You guys certainly have been uh, making your name, even though uh, the company was founded in July 2018. Uh, the Pentagon has been calling for new companies to get into this, into the national security game and uh, better harness uh, technology to address some of the challenges uh, that the department uh, is, is facing. What is it you guys are doing that makes you unique uh, in this market, aside from having a really cool name? Everest is a high growth technology company, and we're developing directed energy systems and power management systems for broader applications across both the government and commercial sectors. And, and what is it that you guys are bringing to this, right? I mean, you, you guys have tried to strike uh, a new corporate culture, uh, you know, driven by innovation, a little bit more deck plate up, uh, if, if, if you will. What is it that you think sets you guys apart in, in approach as well as the technology you guys are bringing to bear? I think, first of all, it's about the people. We have taken and brought together folks from Silicon Valley and the tech industry with some deep experience coming out of the aerospace industry. And the great thing about that is we get the knowledge from the folks out of the aerospace industry of how to work on uh, large programs and hardware technology that can really make a difference. And then you team that with the speed and agility of software-focused people coming out of the, the tech industry and I think we're, we've, we've really built a company with the best of both worlds. And we're, we're building a culture where we ask ourselves on a daily basis, why not? And uh, we enable folks to get things done. And we ultimately really trust in our people. And we're trying to build a culture where uh, we've got the best talent and we trust those people to get to solutions rapidly. And we're seeing that. I, I just... Uh, just recently, we uh, last week, we graduated a class of interns, had 22 interns on board. And I was so impressed with the, the quality of work that they were doing and not just what they did, but what we gave them and trusted them to do. And uh, the outcomes are real. And these are projects that we will be able to take and continue on with into the future and actually turn into product. And I think that is unique in the industry. 
Um, I want to get to how the department is changing uh, how it does business. Obviously, guys like you only succeed if the department itself changes how it does business. Um, But more specifically, what are the enabling technologies, Lee? Uh, Obviously, we're looking at a very proliferated threat. Um, I can go to a catalog. I can order a very, very capable system. Um, You know, when when you were on uh, SEAL teams, you weren't necessarily looking up. Uh, even though the uh, commander of U.S. Special Operations Command, General Clark, has, has sort of said, like, this is now a ubiquitous threat. We're seeing them used on the battlefield uh, as, as well to uh, tremendous effect uh, as, as an incredible uh, equalizer. What are the most interesting, I want to break this down into a couple of pieces, what are the most interesting enabling technologies now that can help us address this threat? Because I wanna get to your Leonidas system and how to architecturally think about the problem in a second. But what are some of the most exciting technologies that are coming to maturity now that you guys are harnessing in order to address the broader problem? I think at the root of what we're doing, Vago, it's about software and AI enabled systems. And we are, in addition to bringing I think truly innovative software in to solve problems. We're teaming that with some some new hardware, some innovative hardware and changing the way people think about the application of energy. And uh, I think that's critical because if you look at what's going on in the world today, you talked about General Clark referring to uh, previously not having to look up. Uh, I think we've seen in Ukraine technology trumping traditional military hardware. And I think it's going to be critically important going forward with, that we have that proper marriage of, uh, of software, AI-enabled software, and ultimately AI-enabled hardware being brought to bear against our adversaries. And, and um, obviously, uh, you know, c- continuing in your very, very cool uh, Greek theme uh, is Leonidas, even though he was a Spartan, you could argue from an Athenian standpoint, uh, is your counter UAS um, approach. You're using high power microwave technology, which is directed energy. What is the systemic approach, right? I mean, you talked about AI enabling. Talk to us about the pieces that have to go into this for both um, uh, sensing, for detection, for targeting, uh, and then defeat because it is a somewhat easier problem, uh, maybe on a battlefield. It's somewhat more of a challenging problem in a domestic environment, uh, right? Walk us through what that architecture needs needs to look like. Absolutely. So ultimately the foundation of what we're doing is a unique approach to high power microwave. High power microwave has traditionally been done with vacuum tubes and magnets and in ultimately very large systems. And we have really scaled that down in size by building a solid state software defined solution. That software definition allows us to rapidly upgrade on the fly, as opposed to having to build a whole new hardware platform from the ground up. So that I think is, is critical to what we're doing. And then tying in our, that ultimately we built an effector. We use high power microwave to have an electronic effect on a target. And you talked about the broader system. We're integrating that with a suite of sensors and ultimately a command and control system, which allows us to bring in sensor feeds from radars, from IR cameras, uh, from RF detectors, et cetera. And the more sensor inputs we have, the more accurately we can pinpoint and identify a target and then apply the right waveform to it. So I think that is a is a different approach to thinking about uh, certainly the sensor integration is not new, 
but uh, being able to rapidly adapt a waveform to the target in, in the world of defense um, is we're kind of changing the way people have thought about that from a high power microwave perspective. And, and, and um, what is the role of artificial intelligence in that, right? I mean, increasingly our, our uh, sponsor uh, on command and control uh, is uh, Ultra. And, and right, part of the argument here is you have to sort of rethink the problem and harness artificial intelligence in terms of target detection, tracking, and even in decision-making. What does that look like from the context of what you guys are, are doing? And what are then the cultural changes that lead drive how the operator culturally needs to, to look at how they do decision-making, right? Because ultimately the system is doing a lot more work for you that you would, you, you know, used to, you know, a long time ago would be doing with a, a grease pencil and folks writing backwards. Exactly. So we look at, and we use AI on, on two critical levels. One is AI enabling our hardware. So the, the, the key component that underlies what we're doing with our power management and high power microwave systems is a technology that we call smart power. And we've effectively AI layered uh, machine intelligence on top of traditional uh, gallium nitride chips in the, in the case of high power microwave uh, to make that technology more effective. That's what allows us to do things at a solid state level. Then when you bring it up to the actual system level where AI becomes critical, and the way I think about this from a, an operational perspective is that if we have a man on the loop on a US-based uh, detection system that is going to affect electronics like a drone, and we go up against an autonomous swarm of drones, that man on the loop rapidly becomes a liability. If the enemy is moving at machine speed, we cannot react at human speed. So we have to have the ability to flip the switch to go to full autonomy on our systems. Everything we build is, is built with the intention of being fully autonomous, but allowing for that human on the loop today. And I think that really changes the way we think about, uh, we have to think about warfare. And, and again, I think that that it's being highlighted today in, in modern conflicts across the globe. And I think if you look at that, that challenge of swarms of drones, that's really what has driven us culturally and from a mission-focused perspective. Single drones are a problem and a real threat, and they're not easy to counter, but swarms of drones, tens, hundreds, or thousands, adds a level of complexity to uh, solving the drone problem that we're just starting to understand, and ultimately, we focused Epirus on developing solutions to counter that. So, so what does that um, ultimately look like, right? Uh, Armenia found uh, at its peril, uh, to its peril, um, that a sophisticated modern army that's really, really good at land combat can find itself utterly uh, decimated uh, with uh, sophisticated uh, or sometimes not that sophisticated, but certainly plentiful uh, unmanned uh, aerial uh, systems, loitering munitions. Um, what does this counter swarm approach Lead, need, need to look like? Uh, what are the enabling technologies that are required? And what's the reasonable time frame to be able to establish uh, defenses, right? Because I think there isn't an adversary that's not looking at the benefits of scale and size uh, that drives a whole bunch of other challenges, right? How do you do this? And how do you get a swarm uh, where you need it to go, right? Generally, these swarming devices tend to be 
short range. But the thing is, if you could figure out a way to get it someplace and then deploy them, they, they end up being quite devastating. How is it you guys are kind of thinking through all the pieces of this problem? Uh, because as you said, it's an order of magnitude problem. It, it really is. And I think if you look at, you know, if, if you've watched some of the light shows that have been done with drones, where there are literally thousands of drones in the air and they're maneuvering and, and creating art with light, if you think about that, and then you think about how hard would it be to take a drone that has that type of maneuverability in a fully autonomous system and change out that light for a munition. And uh, it's pretty, it's pretty terrifying, actually. It, it, it is. It's incredibly terrifying. And to your point, uh, those are generally shorter range. But if you can get in close enough proximity uh, to your target, then range becomes less of an issue. The uh, and, and the real challenge there is autonomy. If you have an autonomous swarm like that, meaning it is not being, each individual drone is not being controlled from an RF-based controller on the ground, which we, we have proven is very easy to counter, uh, you now have to have a solution that can counter that autonomous swarm. You can't interrupt the RF signal because it doesn't exist. So you have to be able to disrupt the, the drone either kinetically or electronically. And uh, if you look at it kinetically, uh, we have kinetic solutions that are great against smaller numbers of drones. But uh, if you think about a kinetic solution, meaning you're firing 50 cal rounds at, at drones and there are thousands of them under, out there, uh, there's a point where you run out of rounds in the magazine before you can hit most of those drones. So the, the ultimate solution is a layered solution, which will include kinetic solutions, directed energy, uh, and, and even RF jamming in some scenarios. A lot of those technologies are designed to counter drones and ones and twos. And I think the, the news from this weekend in Syria really highlighted, uh, you know, there, there was a, an attack on U.S. forces in Syria, and we successfully countered one of the drones. And I'm unclear on how many other drones there were, but we did not successfully counter the other drone or drones. And uh, we need a, an effective counter swarm solution. And that's what we've really built our system to do. We can pinpoint down to a single drone level and focus our uh, high power microwave on a single drone, or we can open up the aperture and take down thousands of drones at a time. And we do that uh, at a, a fraction of the cost of any kinetic solution out there. I mean, we've seen uh, the US and our allies firing munitions against single drones that are, you know, cost anywhere from hundreds of thousands up to almost a million dollars per shot. And when you look at what we're doing at about 0 0.003 cents per drone, uh, we have a very cost-effective technology that can scale to those large numbers. Why is a high-power microwave the best way to do this? Uh, I, first, I want to say it is the best way to take down swarms of drones is certainly not the only way to take down drones. And again, should be combined in a layered defense. Uh, it is effective because it is, again, it's low cost uh, in the form factor we've built. It's relatively small and mobile and it is software adaptable, meaning you can adapt the waveform and without having to put out as much power as some of the larger traditional high power microwave systems by focusing and being able to identify the threat and appropriately apply a waveform, we can uh, have an effect against that target with, with much lower power output, thus lower power required to run the system. And uh, 
it is it is something that is adaptable to new threats as they come online. In the world of electronic warfare, it has always been a game of cat and mouse. Uh, we build a countermeasure, then the enemy is going to try to develop a new weapon that somehow forks that countermeasure, and then we upgrade our technology and uh, and take out that new threat. And the, the thing that is really unique about our approach is by, by doing this with software, this can happen in minutes or hours, and as opposed to taking months or years to rebuild a hardware system from the ground up. Um, the department, I mean, one of the reasons you guys got into this uh, uh, business, aside from being uh, thoughtful people and seeing an opportunity, is that the department has been calling for folks uh, like you to get in uh, the business. But the, the question and the challenge that's long existed is whether the government uh, really puts its, its money and its decisions where its mouth is, right? I mean, there are many, many examples of companies that have done exactly what the department wants uh, it to do and have actually not been rewarded uh, with work, uh, ultimately. From, from your perspective as somebody who spent decades in this game, um, are, you, are you seeing the department change how it does business? I think there is definite change happening in the department. We have leaders in the DOD who are laser focused on trying to solve this problem. Great example would be Undersecretary of Defense, Heidi Hsu, who is looking for and creating mechanisms to uh, accelerate the acquisition process for smaller, innovative, more innovative companies. I think where the challenge exists is the traditional acquisition process for getting to large programs of records is not adapting rapidly. And we have a lot of, uh, a, a lot of government employees who are very comfortable in defaulting to the, the traditional defense contractors. I, I think, you know, there used to be, seeing, be a saying back in the eighties, you know, nobody gets fired for, for, uh, for buying IBM. And, and I, I think that that mentality still exists um, you know, I'm not going to get fired uh, or, you know, I'm not going to get dinged on my, my job evaluation if I go to a traditional aerospace company. Uh, but there is absolutely risk in going to a smaller, more innovative company. And I, I'm not seeing that, uh, that need to, to change move fast enough amongst those in the traditional acquisition system. And, and let me just get a little bit deeper into Ukraine, if I may, Lee. Um, and and you, you mentioned it a moment ago. But what are, what are some of the the real important lessons you're learning about from what you're seeing uh, in a real-time basis on, on the battlefield, as well as from the Armenia-Azerbaijan uh, war and any other, you know, and you, you mentioned uh, Syria a moment ago as well in terms of the attack against uh, American forces. What, what are some of the elements you're seeing about, about the threat and how we have to adapt defenses uh, as, a, as, a, as a consequence? I think it's clear that technology really matters, that brain power is trumping brawn in many cases, and that we have to be able to adapt to more rapidly integrate the latest technology. And when I say the latest technology, I mean the latest commercial technology. The best and brightest in the United States are working for technology companies today. And uh, we need to be able to tap into that talent base rather than having them work on search engines or advertising or gaming. We need, we need that innovation and that brain power to be focused on national defense and our national security. And uh, I think incentivizing companies to move rapidly and be successful is going to help really shepherd that along. I think there are a lot of eyes in Silicon Valley on companies like Eperus 
watching to see what's going to happen. And uh, there's a lot of VC money standing on the sidelines that uh, could pile on top of what's already being done in defense. But I, I think there's there's really a let's wait and see attitude about, hey, how, how is how is the Department of Defense going to handle this? Are they going to move rapidly enough? If so, I think we'll see a lot more companies coming in and a lot more of that technology, which is going to be absolutely essential to help us win the next war and uh, and probably more importantly, avoid the next war. If we've got the right technology on board, the lessons of Ukraine and Azerbaijan and, uh, and, and many of the other uh, conflicts we're seeing across the world will change and it will allow the US and our allies to be able to have the right response to either prevent that from happening or when it does happen to act quickly to shut it down. Uh, let me uh, ask one follow-up to that. So what is the key to speed, right? Um, and and what does that look like? You're talking about moving uh, faster in part by empowering people and the government can if it empowers people, right? Um, you, you mentioned the IBM analogy, but at, at its core, what has to change for us to move as fast as the technology will allow us, right? Because this is less a technology problem than an adoption problem, isn't it? Or is it an integration problem? Or is it an architecture problem? Is it a data problem? Or is it actually all of the above, right? I mean, each each one of these, because we, we have the tools to be able to, I think, go more quickly, even if technology moves faster, what's the right approach to this? You know, of all the things you said are absolutely components. I think there's a cultural problem and it is a willingness to fail fast. I think that has been the hallmark of tech companies that have been successful as we fail fast and we move on and to the, to the next solution. And our customer in this case, the Department of Defense has to be willing to fail fast and to accept that mistakes are going to be made by their personnel and uh, that it's okay, that we're, we're not in a zero fail environment. The only way to be successful in warfare today with technology is to be willing to fail fast and move on to the solution. So walk us through how you uh, grow this uh, enterprise. You guys received about $200 million in your most recent funding round. You have a valuation of $1.3 billion. So congratulations to you and the team, especially at the four-year mark. That's not bad. Um, what are the keys to growing the company? Uh, and, and how it's differently uh, from Microsoft and, and a number of the other companies uh, that, that you've worked at. What's, what's your guys' uh, approach to growth and where do you guys think you'll be in about five years? Yeah, so our approach to growth, it's really been rooted on our ability to move rapidly and to develop technology that is dual-use technology as application for the U.S. government, our allies at, the, at a governmental level, and it has application in the commercial sector as well. And so when I talk about that, I'm going much broader than just high-power microwave, obviously. And so that, that dual-use approach, number one, is critical. Speed is critical, but our ability to win and deliver on, uh, on rapidly growing programs across DOD is also important to us. And we are very focused on solving hard mission problems. I think, you know, you and I can agree, and most of your listeners will agree that the, the threat from drones is real and we have not moved fast enough to counter that. And we have to, and, uh, you know, there have been world events which have forced the DOD in the United States to adapt and rapidly innovate and deliver technology and go back to the Manhattan Project, or you can look at, you know, our reaction to 9-11. Uh, 
there are a number of those uh, those catalysts that have occurred. I hope we don't have to wait for a, a drone-based tragedy to act, but I am confident that uh, the threat we're seeing across the globe and the, the use of technology to thwart conventional weapons is ultimately driving that need to, to change rapidly and to bring these larger programs on board quickly. One thing that I think is critical here is the relationship between the tra traditional defense companies and the innovative companies that are coming up like Epirus. We found that uh, we work very well with the, the platform builders. Great example is our relationship with General Dynamics and putting Leonidas on board the Striker. Another example would be uh, further down the road, putting Leonidas on board a, a ship or another platform. And that relationship between the, the builders of platforms and uh, the providers of innovative technology is going to be critical to our success in the military and, and the US government going forward. I think the area where we need to be careful is with uh, traditional systems integrators and that uh, we don't, in, in, a, in a fear of failing fast, we don't try to insert traditional systems integrators in between the innovative companies and our end customer. Uh, whether that is a general dynamics or whether it's directly to the Department of Defense. I, I think that that proximity between the innovative company and the customer is critical to maintain that speed and agility. And any loss of that speed and agility will, will ultimately uh, cause the failure of program. So I, I think we want to make sure that we maintain those correct relationships with the builders of platforms and then uh, that we have the right relationships with the systems integrators as well. And, and Lee, just, just before we go, I want to ask you about scalability, right? Um, obviously, the holy grail in any directed uh, energy system is to get to air and missile defenses. Um, you know, we, there is a recognition about the threat being posed from Chinese uh, theater ballistic uh, systems, DF-21, uh, DF-26, DF-17, and, and the like. Um, and increasingly, the threat from cruise missile systems. You know, we're seeing that that you know the United States is no longer the only person with really good cruise missiles. The Russians have them as well. How scalable is your technology to go from a counter swarming drone capability to one that can actually be used uh, not just against air breathing systems like cruise missiles, but also then get them to ballistic missile defenses? Because ultimately, right, we're now using, as you mentioned earlier, multi million dollar or or in the case of uh, Iron Dome, right. $20,000 missiles uh, all the way to something that is directed energy. And as long as it's solid state, you have pretty, and as long as you can keep the power going, you have a bottomless magazine. Yeah, there's definite applicability of our technology uh, to counter larger threats like cruise missiles. We've actually had conversations with senior leadership across DOD on that topic. And the what we've done with our technology, the, the reason our technology has been so successful against counter drone, counter vehicle, counter vessel, yes. and, and other electronics uh, is the adaptability of the software in it. And as we increase the power, and we've increased it now over the last year and a half, uh, 3X from the, the, uh, the minimally viable product, which was the first one we took out and demonstrated for the DOD, um, we're not only increasing power, but depending on the application, we can scale up or scale down the size of the system and whether it's a shipboard system or a, uh, a land-based system or even an aircraft-borne system, uh, we have the ability to put the right amount of power output out there uh, to cover and counter targets at great distances 
and uh, to do it very effectively. So that the, the same things that have made us effective against uh, today's electronic threats like drones will make our technology effective against uh, missiles and other uh, larger threats as we grow the company. What is it that it would take, Lee, to get us there, uh, right? I mean, defense of Guam is a very, very important uh, issue, uh, right? I mean, to be able to get this kind of a capability forward and to be able to do it uh, quickly, uh, indeed, economically, right? I mean, the United States Air Force now has the Continental Cruise Missile Defense Mission, even if it hasn't gotten yet the money uh, to, to do that, right? Nothing like getting mission and, and no money, uh, which can, can drive focus in terms of how to economically solve a problem. What, what would it take to get the technology to the point where it is uh, deployable and, and able to do that missile defense mission forward? It's actually not that hard uh, a technical challenge for us to solve. We've increased the power output of our system uh, 3x over the last year and a half. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is if you're looking at uh, defending a, a land a landmass, uh, size is not the constraint. So we have the ability not only to increase the power output, but to increase the size of the system. We can run uh, our systems in, in sync, in tandem with each other and double the, the power output, thus the range of the systems. And we have the ability to build larger arrays, which can take on uh, threats like missiles on a, in a Guam scenario. Lee, absolute pleasure having you on the program. Fair winds following seas and look forward to having you back on again uh, to join us uh, to, to keep sort of moving a pace on what the state of the art uh, of the threat is and what the solutions look like. Vago, thank you so much.